you. He graduated from uh, MIT, and uh, God really specially prepared and uniquely prepared Charlie, I think, for uh, a, a distinctive uh, ministry that he has. And many of you know that, that he's very interested in issues related to, to science and the Bible. He, he, was, uh, he pastored at Lubbock Bible Church back in the 70s where uh, he was dealing with a lot of, uh, of university students at Texas Tech and uh, dealing with a lot of, uh, a lot of different uh, problems, that, especially more academic and intellectual assaults upon Christianity, which is where he first developed the idea for his, for his framework, but, but also recognizing the problems that relate to creation, evolution, and many other areas. He is a meteorologist by, by training and profession as well, got his uh, master's in science and atmospheric science uh, from Texas Tech, and he worked for many years as a weather officer for the and a civilian meteorologist for the uh, for the for the Army, and he retired as the chief of the U.S. Army Aberdeen Test Center on the atmospheric effects team. Now that's important because a lot of people who are writing and talking about global uh, are about climate change and and the climate do not have scientific degrees in the areas related to to meteor, meteorology that they have specialists in other areas so he brings not only a biblical framework to the topic but also he has the scientific credentials and he is also very much involved with the um oh um Cornwall Alliance the Cornwall Alliance which is a group of of Christian uh, scientists and theologians who are working and producing a lot of material uh, countering the fallacious arguments and the mythology of global warming. So with that, Charlie is going to give us an update on what's going on in the whole debate on global warming and, and uh, weather science. Uh, let's uh, have a word of prayer as we uh, come so we will get into the Word of God. It's in the climate thing, but we, our ultimate authority is still the Scriptures. Father, we thank you that you have provided your Word down through the corridors of time, that you've preserved the text against all enemies, people who have tried to destroy it, distort it, suppress it, and even today how it is being suppressed in our educational system. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit and that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So we, maybe uh, we can be encouraged from your word today and have that confidence that we need as Christians in a paganizing society. For we ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. What I would like to do uh, in this presentation is not just deal with a climate situation, but use that climate situation and this debate as a learning opportunity to use the biblical framework to analyze it. In other words, we have a contemporary problem. We have one that is actually global in extent, uh, very serious economic implications policy-wise if certain people get their way politically. And so it's a, it's a big issue as far as our national budget goes and as far as the uh, uh, whole global political situation goes. So I think it's an issue that we can look at, but what we want to do is not just look at the situation 
as any outsider would look at it. But as Christians, we want to go to the text of the scriptures and utilize the internal framework of the Bible itself and just review how we can think about this so that our thinking is subordinate to the scriptures. So what I want to do is I want to start out with just a uh, point about how we look at the Bible. I've talked to several pastors here and, and they mentioned the thing that young people particularly that have grown up in our Bible churches uh, are very familiar with a lot of the scriptures. Um, but the problem is that the way they've been taught, if they haven't been homeschooled, they've been in a secular system of education. And they have the Bible off to a, a side compartment. Not not deliberately, it just happens. So I want to just kind of start with this issue here. Is our Bible education, the education we get in our churches, is it isolated from the rest of knowledge or is it integrated with the rest of knowledge? And what we face today is we, we have three basic questions that everybody has to answer poorly or very well. But these are three questions that I always start with because every person who is made in God's image, and that's every person, has a God-shaped vacuum in their heart. Ecclesiastes tells us that. And that means that we don't think uh, like dogs, cats, animals. We think as people made in God's image. And that means we have questions that no other creature actually has. We want to know purpose. God says he has put a sense of eternity in our hearts, but he's done it, so we can't figure it all out. It's a, it's a God-conscious thing. And one of the great questions is, what is reality? And this is a question that is sloppily answered. In fact, the educational system, I'm convinced, conspires, not necessarily deliberately, but conspires to suppress this question. And the reason it conspires to suppress this question is because everybody knows that when you start asking this question, where it's going to lead you. And as unbelief, we don't want to be led there to a, to a consciousness of the fact that there's a creator out there to whom we're responsible. But the basic question is, what is the nature of reality? And I always go back to one of the great mathematicians of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, who in 1903 uh, said reality, and remember he's writing in 1903, this is when the human viewpoint of um, the 19th century kind of permeated American culture. The 20th century was going to be the great century of scientific advance. It was going to be the great century of world peace and so on. And only a few years later, we had one of the bloodiest wars in American history. So the, the question that, that how he answered it was that we are the product of causes that had no prevision whatsoever of the end they were achieving. And every human action, every human accomplishment is but the outcome of an accidental collocation of atoms. And this is, the, this is the conclusion that if you're going to reject the word of God, you better have courage enough to accept and live out the consequences of your rejection of the word of God. 
And people don't like to know that. Francis Schaeffer always said people like to live in a halfway house where they live with the fruit of the Bible without the root of the Bible. And what we have to point out is, if you want to be a serious unbeliever, have the courage to live out the consequences of your viewpoint. And so this is the what is reality question. Another one is their ultimate truth. And we know in our postmodern era, this is being answered with no, there isn't except when I speak. See, that, that's what these people are teaching. Um, there's no such thing as truth, but yet if you ask them, well then, the college management of this university could then therefore cheat on your uh, hiring contract. Is that what you mean? There's no such thing as, oh, no, 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 that's true. So, see, it's a silly answer to this basic question. Everybody knows that somewhere there's got to be absolute truth. What is truth? Truth doesn't change. Two plus two is four. As Ray pointed out, the engineering principles of the pyramids are still with us 4,000 years later. Truth does not change. Insights change. How we apply truths change, but truth itself doesn't change. If it changes, it's not true. And then we have the third issue, are there ethical absolutes? Now, this one is very tricky. We have a whole generation on the university campuses that believe that faculty particularly have trained in what is called critical theory. It's a cultural Marxist product, and we don't have time this morning to go into that, but key faculty members, particularly in the electives that you get in college called studies, women's studies, culture studies, racism studies, usually those courses with the word studies in them are taught by college university professors that are using critical theory. And critical theory is the idea that you destroy the divine institutions, basically, because you have such superior ethics that you can judge those, you can criticize those. Uh, you hear the term social justice. And uh, really, if you ask them, where are you getting social justice from? They can't tell you. Because the only alternative to the Bible's answer that there are ethical absolutes is a statistic. What do I mean by that? The only thing you've got is a statistical summary of people's opinions. The Gallup poll last week said 37% of the people believe this, 82% of the people believe that. What does that percent mean? It's just a statistic, isn't it? It's a statistical summary of different people's opinions. I can't derive an ethic from that. A statistic isn't an ethic. So that's the, another confusion. So what, here's what happens. Everybody, including the young people today, are struggling with these questions. The problem is, in a secular environment, the Bible is walled off from that. The Bible is relegated to a little compartment. And when we teach the Bible, we have got to break out of that. You can sit and spend your lifetime exegeting a Bible verse or a Bible passage or a Bible book but if you're teaching that in such a way that it never contacts general revelation, remember the two words, general and special revelation? Special revelation is God's words that he has preserved in the text of Scripture. That's special revelation. But he's the creator. He's created the whole environment around us. And as Ray and several others have pointed out in Acts 17, God's providence controls all of history. 
So for us as Christians, the whole world is general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. So the problem is, how do we bring special revelation into full body contact with general revelation? See, if our teaching doesn't do that, what we unintentionally result in, we, we school our people to think of the Bible, I know the Bible, but it's off to a compartment. So what we have to do is we have to break out whatever, particularly in the educational environment, whatever the subject is. Somebody may be studying education. They may we want a teacher. Uh, they may be taking a course in, in how to teach. Uh, you know, environment, um, elementary education or, or education at a higher level. But the problem is that if you're looking at educational theory, and to, for example, start reading John Dewey. He was one of the fathers of our public educational system. And in class, you really read him and he, you notice what he says, which is that Christianity and democracy are incompatible. And you say, what? what? John Dewey is saying this from Columbia University, the guy that has trained more teachers than anybody. Well, you know why he says that? Do you know why that he says that Christianity and democracy are incompatible? Simple. What does Christianity do to a society? It divides them between the saved and the unsaved. Dewey knew that. And he said that is a danger to a human community and its unity. And so obviously, if you are in an education course, you're training to be a teacher in the public school systems and you bought into Dewey, you've denied the word of God. So, and you may be not even aware that that's what you've done, but that's because you've learned the Bible, but it's not contacting these subject materials. So what we want to do as we come to this, uh, this subject, I want to uh, look at the environmental movement. I'm going to look first. Mark has done a great work, uh, Nazi Oaks. And I, I want to start with the environmental movement as a, as a big movement. And then we'll look at climate change as part of that movement. So we go from the whole down to a special area. For, but I want to look at the whole first. Um, Mark has done an excellent study on how the environmental movement got started in, in Western civilization. Uh, it got started here and in Europe about 200 years ago. So as Mark says, for the past 200 years in both North America and Europe, the Judeo-Christian worldview has been specifically targeted, and that we want to get into this a little bit more particularly later. It has been specifically targeted by modern environmental thinkers for being anti-natural. And we want to understand what they mean when they talk that way. Much like the ancient Canaanite nature religion effectively suffocated Israel and Judah, Modern environmentalism is well on its way to completely smothering the contemporary Western world as well. Environmental asceticism is well on its way into becoming a total replacement for the Judeo-Christian ethic in the Western world. And I want to extend what Mark has said. And not only is it becoming a total replacement, but it is undermining science itself. <clears throat> and I want to <clears throat> defend <clears throat> why I can say that uh, Lauren Isley had this statement, and I think it's so uh, thought-provoking. Let's think about our Western civilization a moment. And I highly recommend a book by Vishal Mingalwadi. It's called 
the book that made your world. Look it up on Amazon, the book that made your world. And Mangalwadi, it's an Indian name, M-A-N-G-A-L-W-A-D-I. He spent many years as an Indian Christian arguing with the culture of Hinduism in his own country. And he looks at the West, West, us, our civilization. And it's an eloquent statement of the fact that every element in Western civilization that has created prosperity, that has created political liberty, came not from the Greeks and the Romans that you always get in your history and social studies classes. The Romans and the Greeks were pagans. And it wasn't that culture that gave the West its advantage. What gave the West its advantage was the influence of the Bible. One simple example. Never covered in an education course. Who started universal education? Universal education never happened in a pagan society. Never once. Roman elite did not want to educate the common man. Because it would be a threat. You keep them stupid so you can manipulate them. Universal education began with the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. And you know how it started? It started because Luther wanted to teach the word of God in the language of the street. Not in Latin, but in German. He translated the Bible into German and Providence had it that Gutenberg had the printing press. And so they could print the Bible in German. Problem was... They don't know how to read German. So what good does it do to produce the Bible in the German language if nobody can read it? So Luther, who had been financed by the German princes, insisted and got them, persuaded them, that you had to train everyone in the language. That people was the source of universal education. And see, that's never covered we keep the Bible out. How silly. Keep the Bible out of education. The Bible was the place where we started universal education. So anyhow, we have this this thing that's going on and I want to uh, point out what Eisley's saying because now I want to move from education to science itself. Science is an invented cultural institution. An institution not present in all societies and not one that may be counted upon to arise from the human instinct. The rise of the scientific method is not social evolution. Science arose only in one area of the world. Science did not arise in India. It did not arise in Asia. It arose in Europe, which should trigger us to say, well, what was so different about the European culture? Well, he says it demands some kind of unique soil in which to flourish. And then he adds a warning. And without that soil is as capable of decay and death as any human activity such as religion or a system of government. So that's my theme today that when we look at what's going on, we're not just observing climate change. We're not just observing an environmental movement. We are observing the destruction of one of the engines of Western prosperity, which was the scientific method itself. Well, what do we need to... uh, Let me, before I get to this, and I apologize for the fact that the slides aren't on the CD. 
um, that you have from the conference. The paper's there, but the slides aren't. Uh, I'm giving them to the folks on a thumb drive, so maybe on the website later uh, the slides will be there. But there are three things, at least, that you need to make science work. And believe me, I, I have never heard the basis of science explained to me in any science course from kindergarten through 12th grade through four years at MIT and two years of graduate school. All the science courses, not once did any teacher ever lay out clearly in the classroom what you need as a foundation for the scientific method. Not once. And I'll bet you none of you have either. So here are the three things we need. Nature must be de-divinized. Nature can't be treated like the pagans treat nature. You don't look and dissect the leaves on a tree in a pagan mentality because you're offending the god of the trees. If you really believe that nature is populated by deities and I'll show you evidence that the environmental movement is coming back to that belief. That we have, If you really believe nature is that way, it's chaotic. It's, it's royal ground. You don't tamper on it. And the environmental movement seizes on that point. So number one, nature has to be divinized, de-divinized. It's not God, and it's not some holy thing that we worship. Second, Man must be assured that he has the intellectual capacity to recognize order in nature. There has to be a, a, a compatible movement of the way God designed our minds with logic built in so that we can recognize when we look by observation around us in the physical environment that we, in our heads, our concepts fit that. That sounds so, so philosophical. But if that isn't true, everything else is an illusion, including observations. Third thing, and this came because of the Reformation. This came, the third element, came about because of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And that says that man is to manage nature. He is to subdue nature. And Luther, of all people, again, was the man that introduced vocation, voca, calling. And what Luther argued was that the shoemaker and the carpenter have as much a calling before God as any priest or monk. What he did, he said, every Christian has a calling. No matter what your specialty is, it is a divine calling. And so he says an incentive for science is that you get your hands dirty and you work in this field as a calling. And, and Steve, our, our keynote speaker, has been an excellent example of, of a person doing that. So we've had a whole situation develop in history. And I want to just, again, summarize chronologically how we got science started in the West. Albright, before he died, was going to write a book. Unfortunately, he died before he could write it. But he, he was looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And he was noticing the kind of thinking of Solomon in that book. He didn't think Solomon wrote it. But the idea was that the wisdom literature of the Bible was the first time in human history where the environment was considered to be 
understandable. The pagans didn't think it was going to be understandable. They were terrified of it. So he, he was, he's going to do this. But let me list just um, five steps chronologically as to, that led to what we call science. We just take for granted, go through a science course, never talk about its foundation, never talk what's nourishing it, and go on. So number one, the Bible gave us that nature is knowable by man. That came out of the wisdom literature of the Bible. Point two, the Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, and the others, did enough thinking to organize logical reasoning. So the Greeks did do one thing. They elevated the the discipline of thinking logically. Third point, in the Middle Ages, the church began with people that were studying nature. Empirical observation, Mendel, all these guys, they started observing nature. And it was the monks, largely, in the Middle Ages. Then we come to, the, the actually it's the four steps. The fourth step was the Reformation that gave men the incentive to seek God's calling in this area. When you undercut any of those, you undercut science. So now let's turn to the issue of climate change. One of the problems we have right away is an ignorance of history. I wonder if they even teach history anymore. Too busy teaching how to use condoms. So the point is that if you knew history, you would know that the climate has changed in the past. And yet we have journalists that write these learned articles that act like they, this is the new thing. Oh, the climate's changing. It's always changed. Here's Rodney Stark of Baylor University, Christian guy, wrote this book, How the West Won. And see, that's a politically incorrect title. Right there, you can tell where Rodney Stark's coming from. And so here's what he says. And he, by the way, is the only historian I know of that mentions climate change in his historical writings. Here's what he says. The most basic fact about Earth's climate is that has been forgotten. Warming and cooling trends are quite common. Beginning sometime in the 8th century, the Earth began to heat up, producing what now is known as the medieval warm period, which lasted from 800 to 1250. As temperatures rose, the growing period lengthened. And I want you to notice what he's saying here. Notice what he is saying. Here you have a test case. What happens when the climate warms? And he points out, here's what happened. As temperatures rose, the growing period lengthened. Now, if the growing period lengthened, what else do you suppose happened? There was more food available. What do you think happened to disease? It decreased. What do you think happened to the population of Europe during that period? It grew by 50%. Are these? Do you ever read these things in Discovery Magazine or... Do you ever hear these on the video? No, because we're historically ignorant. And so he says, as the temperatures rose, the growing period lengthened all across northern Europe. The Arctic ice pack receded. Apparently the polar bears survived, (laughs) making it much safer to sail in the North Atlantic. And it became possible, and look at this last time, look at the last clause. 
it became possible to farm successfully as far north as Greenland. 215 farms were started by the Norsemen and the Vikings on the continent of Greenland. And by the 1250, they had to retreat because it got colder and colder and they couldn't farm anymore. So obviously the climate was changing. So here's some climate uh, going back into the historical records, just kind of just briefly to watch the changes that have happened. And the, the problem is, there's, uh, understand here, there was no network of weather observations before 1850. So let's understand that. There were no widespread use of thermometers. So how do we know how these historical records worked. Well, one of the proxies that is a fill-in for the lack of a temperature measuring network is to ask when the, how they grew their crops. And particularly in Switzerland, northern Italy, how far up the mountains did they grow their olive orchards? That's a measure of climate. And there are other historical records which we can't go into because of the time here. But let me just scan this for you. 200 B.C. to 500 A.D. was a warm period. What historical civilization flourished in that time? The Roman Empire. Then we have, from 500 to 900, a cooling period. What invasion happened across Europe during this period that destroyed the Roman Empire? Yeah. Why do you suppose they came out of Asia? They were looking for food. It was cold on the northern plains of Asia. But nobody points this out, that there's a climatic uh, causation going on here in history. Then we come to the medieval warm period. Some people date it a little bit differently, but plus or minus 100 years. Then we come after that to the Little Ice Age. Remember the picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware? You see what's in the water? Ice. When Washington was trying to attack the, the uh, British... Uh, they had hired the Hessians to defend Trenton. Um, he had a neat military plan, which was to one general was to cross the Delaware River south of Trenton and march north. And uh, uh, Washington was going to cross the Delaware north of Trenton and march south. Well, the general that was trying to go south, he had to report. To, he sent some guys up to Washington. Said, "I can't get across the river." Um, he have artillery pieces and I, I can't get it on the boats the boats can't get through the ice uh, I don't want to roll the stuff over the ice so I got a problem so, I, uh, so Washington lost half of his army trying to cross the Delaware River that was a ice, little ice age that was going back in your own families that's four generations ago your, your grandparents or your great grandparents will tell you stories about the snow that they had in their day if you lived in the north I remember my grandmother's telling me about how the snow was up to the eve of the house. Well, it's not up the eve of the house in Maine anymore. So that was the Little Ice Age. And then we have today the warming period. Okay. That's basically from historical records. Now, there are non-historical records, and here's one of them where they look at ice cores and various, various data sources. Now, what do you notice? Let's think about what we're looking at here. If somebody comes to you and tells you that CO2 is the prime driver of climate change, what do you notice about the graphs? How much fossil fuel was being burned in 1000 AD? 
See the point? If you don't know history, you get screwed up. And so here we have an instance where there was not a correlation between global temperature and CO2. Back then, CO2 was pretty constant. So if, there's a, if there is a temperature change and you can't correlate it with CO2, what is the next conclusion you have to come to? There's at least one other variable, right? Temperature is caused by a function, maybe of CO2, but there has to be other variables. Well, if there are other variables that are causing the temperature change, how do you know those same all the variables aren't active today? So this is this is the the logic that's going on here. Now, this medieval warm period gave the environmentalists a heartburn. So they became incensed to see if they could erase the medieval warm period from the scientific data. In 1991, the UN IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, these are the people that are supposedly taking care of us and want to identify the threat of climate change to human civilization. That's their charter. In their 1990 report, they included the medieval warm period. But then there was a man by the name of Michael Mann who decided that that doesn't look too good. I, I, we, have to, we have to suppress the medieval warm period. Now, I'm not making this up. Dr. Deming, who worked at the University of Oklahoma Geosciences Department, narrates a conversation that he had. He says, in 1995, I had a short paper published in the prestigious journal Science, Deming, 1995. I reviewed how borehole temperature data recorded warming of about one degree Celsius in North America the last 100 to 150 years. I closed the manuscript, I closed the manuscript with what seemed to me a remarkably innocuous and inconsequential statement, quote, a cause-effect relationship between anthropogenic activities and climate warming cannot be demonstrated unambiguously at the present time. The week the article appeared, I came into my office one morning to find an email message from a reporter for NPR, National Public Radio. He wanted to invite, uh, interview me regarding my article in science. I got on the phone and he focused on the last sentence of my article. He said, do you really mean to say that we can't show anthropogenic things in a quantitative type way? I said, yes. He replied then, well then, I guess we don't have a story. That's not what people are interested in. People are interested if the warming is due to human activities. Goodbye. Then later, he gets an email from a mysterious Mr. O, because this mysterious man, and he, it turns out he, we know now who he was, worked, he was a high worker in climate for NOAA. He apparently thought Deming was on the bandwagon for climate science, and he emailed him with the article saying, we have to get rid of medieval warm period. Now, these are the guys that are high up. These aren't amateurs. These are not just grad students doing a dissertation. These are guys that are making the decisions on where money flows in the climate change debate. So man came out with this thing uh, in, the, his, in the later version of the IPCC documents. Well, no sooner did he do that then he was challenged by a man by the name of Stephen McIntyre, who is a mathematician, and Ron McKittrick, who is a Canadian economics professor. And they dissected his whole article. 
and it took them month after month after month to get the data from man, what data were you using? And he didn't want to give up the data. Then they had to go after him, what software package were you using to correlate this data? Well, they finally got it and found out that it, it didn't show this. In fact, it showed that first graph, not the second one. So there was something going on, and at the time, uh, Senator Mac, uh, Inhofe from Oklahoma chaired the Senate Committee on Climate, and he s- smelled a rat, because all this is government financed. So you and I are paying for this. So he asked uh, Mr. Wegman, and in the paper I give you Wegman report, it's in the appendix, first appendix, Wegman happened to be the chairman of the American Statistical Association. So he started looking at it. He got statisticians looking at it. Long story short, it was just a very bad, bungled software analysis of the data. Furthermore, Wegman pointed out something called incestuous peer review. What did he mean by incestuous peer review? The guy that reviews your papers all agree. So there were four or five guys that... It was a reviewed journal, a peer-reviewed journal. Problem was, all the peer reviewers bought into this hypothesis. And what Wegman said, if you guys are going to use sophisticated statistical techniques, when you do your peer review, you need to bring in trained statisticians from outside the climate community to see what you're doing. So that's all documented in, in Appendix A. Well, that's not the first uh, issue that happened. Next issue... It's more recently happened two years ago. And that was, all of a sudden, NOAA said 2014, 2015 was the highest, hottest year on record. And the reason they did that was because they're bothered by this graph. This graph, note you notice, there hasn't been detectable warming for about 15 years. What, but CO2 has continued to increase for the last 15 years. So why is it that the temperature hasn't correlated with the CO2 levels? So something's not right in the model. Something's not right in our thinking here. So Noah was upset by this, and this is not Noah the Bible. This is uh, (laughs) Noah the uh, agency. Um, And so they got a guy to write a paper in 2014 uh, to say that, well, we, we've reanalyzed the statistics and we can find a trend in that, in that time period because the, we, used, we, we massaged and we corrected the temperature data that was going in. Well, this attracted the attention of Johns Hopkins physicist, um, the, um, let me get the name here, General uh, Happer, Dr. Happer. He's a well-known physicist and so he has written an article or a letter to the congressman, I forget, I think he's from Texas here, who's chairing the committee to review NOAA's budget. And what, what Dr. Happer has noticed is both NOAA and EPA, if you look internal to their organizations, have published documents that define what you're supposed to do by way of peer review before you issue a paper that has very important implications. And in, in, in EPA, when they passed this 2030 goal of 50% reduction in carbon, they never followed their own internal publication on how you do QC. 
And so, so this caught the attention of Harper and others. And so they're saying, hey, wait a minute. This is a, this is a, uh, you're talking about millions of dollars in a government program and you guys aren't following your internal memos. And it turns out Noah said, well, uh, the paper that said that this was corrected wasn't really an important paper. And he said, what do you mean it's not an important paper? It's, it's determining public policy for heaven's sake. So I, I just show you these incidences because I want you to see what's going on in the background here. And then we're going to get to, to why. There's one other thing about that graph I want you to notice. Look at the x-axis. What are the units of measurement? Tenths of a degree. Not degrees, but tenths of a degree. Now, you know how much our thermometers can measure by accuracy? To a tenth of a degree. I measure temperature for 40 years by all kinds of methods. The net temperature network in the world doesn't mention temperatures more accurately than a tenth of a degree, and sometimes it's worse than that. It might surprise you to know that the National Weather Service does not calibrate their temperature sensors on a regular basis. The only time they calibrate them is when they get a, a, a weird reading. It's expensive, very expensive. So now what we want to do is ask, a, ask this question. What is it that turned a few tenths of a degree of temperature change per decade into a massive geophysical apocalypse that's going to bring an end to Western civilization? So that's the question we want to address. What are the social motives? What are the political motives? So there are actually three. These are the incentives to turn global warming into a global crisis. Number one, and this is why I started with Mark's quotation from, the, from how uh, the environmental movement background. Look at this, modern revival of ancient paganism. What that leads to is nature worship. And uh, nature worship, I mean, it can be very bizarre, but nature worship is just elevating the value of nature above or man. Now let's think about this. If you go out, and, and I'm not sure whether the eagle is still on the endangered species list, if you go and you break an eagle egg, you can be fined. You can rip out a human fetus and it's okay. It's protected by the law. So you answer that. Which is more valuable? Nature has become more valuable than human life. And this is a direct result of a way of looking at reality. It's the classical pagan day. In the Old Testament, what, were the, what did the prophets condemn of what parents were doing to their children? Offering them to Moloch. See, Baalism, paganism has always demeaned human value. It's always nature first, human value second. You see this when we get later into the issue of the so-called uh, pristine wildernesses. Okay, man was supposed to cower. Here's an example of what happens. And then there's a second one and a third one, and then I'll go through to illustrate them. Second one is the way science research is funded. Funding structure of modern research means it is dependent on federal money. And if you are dependent on federal money, you have to compete to Congress. And that forces you to become a lobbyist. So this has a 
this has an effect on the whole process. Third one is now we have ambitious global politicians that are behind the United Nations and they have an agenda also. So my my thesis here is that these are the three reasons why you have this uh, alarmism about climate. I thought this picture was appropriate. But look at the first quote. This is Christina Figueres, Secretary of the UN Framework Convention, which is the monitoring agency for all climate. She opens a conference in 2010 with a prayer. And she says this, and it was her cha- prayer was to Ixtel, who is a, a, a middle American uh, ancient goddess of tapestry. So she prays before this UN conference with government leaders from all over the world, not to Jesus Christ, not to the God of the Jews, not even to Islam, not to Allah, but to Ixtel. And then she concludes her address, 20 years from now, we will admire the policy tapestry that you have woven together and think back to the inspiration of Ixtel. Now I show you these quotes because I know you think I'm crazy when I say that paganism is re-arising. This is the head of the United Nations Commission on Climate. Tell me it's not pagan. Here's Gore in his book, Earth and the Balance. The fate of mankind, as well as of religion, depends on the emergence of a new faith in the future. Armed with such a faith, we might find it possible, and look at his last words, to do what to nature? To re-sanctify it. See, that's ancient Baalism. That's what the Baalists did. Here, to make it clearer, is the Ark of Hope. This is an ark, and it's patterned after the Ark of the Old Testament. It's carried around to university campuses, 100 campuses and schools a year. This is a United Nations thing, and this is Gorbachev, who, along with a socialist from Canada, can't think of his name right now, says, My hope is that this charter will be a kind of Ten Commandments, a Sermon on the Mount, that provides a guide for human behavior toward the environment in the next century. And included within it is a whole policy, basically worldwide socialism. So there's a religious thrust to this. This is not just a cold, calculated thing. There's a passion, a religious passion. Now I want to go to the, the second issue. Remember the second one was federal funding. Back in 1961, before he retired, Eisenhower gave a very famous speech. It was called his farewell address. It's available on the internet. And this is the address that everybody cites about the danger of the military-industrial complex. But what people don't understand is that if you read the text of his farewell address, three or four paragraphs after he gets through the military-industrial warning, he talks about this. And I consider this, Eisenhower saw what was happening. Remember, Ike ran the army in Europe in World War II. So he had understanding about how funding went on. When he became president, he realized the Manhattan Project, the building of the uh, nuclear weapon, that involved creation of whole laboratories. Argonne, Livermore, Sandia, all these laboratories. Where did the bucks come for the Manhattan Project? Came from the federal government. What happens when World War II ends? You've got to keep the laboratories going, don't you? You've got all these PhDs hired. 
they're trying to earn bread for their families? What do you do, fire them all? No, you keep them going on other projects. So here's what Ike saw, that if that happens, partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. You heard intellectual curiosity last night when Steve was talking about his bathtub. <laughs> and we, we, we all laughed at that, but you realize that's how a scientist thinks. In his bathtub, he thought of a neat idea. It wasn't programmed. He didn't go to Congress for, for permission to, to get the idea. It just happens. That's creativity. That's what God places in hearts that we can have be creative. So he says, the prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. And I have other quotes in the paper which we don't have time, but I recommend you look at some of those quotes from Dr. Linson from MIT who has watched this in the area of meteorology. I belong to the uh, professional member of the American Meteorological Society. But the American Meteorological Society used to be in a little, little office in 45 Beacon Street, Boston. But now, because of everything, they've got to have a lobby office in Washington, D.C. And before Dr. Lindzen retired from MIT, he pointed out the staff member that's speaking to Congress on behalf of all meteorologists, on behalf of all meteorologists, was a staff member that used to work for Al Gore. And they hired him because of his connections. So now how do you think that guy represents me or represents any of the meteorologists? But the newspapers say, well, the American Meteorological Society says it's all a majority of meteorologists back this. They don't do surveys. I was never asked for my opinion. But this is the kind of delusional behavior that's going on. So there's a third level, and that is the ambitions of globalist politicians. Now, what's interesting about this statement is the man is making it. Michael Holm is the head of the, of, uh, the University of East Anglia Atmospheric Science. That's the world center for weather records. And it's this man who's been the tutor of graduate students to get their doctorates under. Now, look at what he says. The function of climate change really is not about stopping climate chaos. Instead, we need to see how we can use the idea of climate change to rethink uh, how we take forward our political, social, economic, and personal projects over the decades to come. Okay? And I could give, and the paper, I've, in the interest of time, I'm skipping this, but in the paper you can see more quotes. But then there's more ominous behavior. In the last years, those of us who have been skeptics uh, have been attacked viciously, legally and politically. Here, a Democrat representative from Arizona demanded that employees of seven skeptical scientists turn over all records of their funding sources, 2014. Now, fortunately, most of us who are, are, are retired people if they want to take away our Social Security checks, maybe. Um, but we're not funded by Exxon. The next guy, just last week, repeated the same thing. Senator Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island. With 20 climate scientists defending a RICO investigation of funding sources of skeptical scientists. Just repeatedly, just called for Congress to do it again. 
What do you suppose this does for those people that work inside the establishment that have doubts? You better shut up if you want to keep your job. So understand the dynamics that are going on here. So to sum up, we've got these three issues that come up, and now we want to get into the framework approach here. Modern revival, ancient paganism, funding structure, ambition of globalist politicians. Now what we want to do is we want to say, okay, we're Christians. We're not going to buy into the isolation of the Bible. Instead, we're going to break it out and we're going to use it. And that leads us to a framework approach to the Bible. And we look at the events and then we look at, this is, this is God's history. And each one of these have uh, implications and teach doctrine. So we think about these doctrines. We go all the way up to the call of Abraham and Mount Sinai, and those are the only events I'm going to very hastily cover. But the reason I'm covering it is because beginning with Abraham in 2000 BC, God created exclusivity. That means that revelation comes only through the Jews, no one else. And that's because of Babel that... Ray pointed out here in his, his two approaches. There's a clash going on between the counterculture to which we belong as Bible-believing Christians and the world at large. And that clash is never going to go away until Jesus Christ returns. So let's get, suck it up and get used to it. We are insurgents and we are going to be attacked. They crucified Jesus and they're going to go after you and after me. And instead of panicking about it, just understand, hey, that's the price of being a believer in Satan's domain. So we want to understand the implications of that. First one, let's look at creation. What implications does creation have to look at this whole climate thing? Well, first of all, you see the creator-creature distinction. There are two levels of existence the eternal self-determining personal God and temporal dependent creation. And what does that imply? It means the pagan notion that there is one level of existence that is creation, that nature is all there is. We all come out of nature, Mother Nature, capital N. Um, that, that's what they believe. You can't believe that and believe the Bible. There's a collision here. The Bible undercuts the very core of paganism. And what that carries an implication, that God determines the relative values of man and nature, and nature is not to be divinized. That's how you take the word of God and you work out the implications that direct toward whatever the subject is you're looking at. Here's a second one. This is the one that infuriates, absolutely infuriates the environmentalist movement. Man is to have dominion over all of terrestrial nature to bring forth its beauty and productivity. And that carries an implication. That means nature, the idea that it has to be left in pristine wilderness, is wrong. Think about Genesis 2. See, people, the the attackers of us always argue that, see, you Christians, you believe in Genesis 1, 26, 28. That means you've got free to trash the environment and abuse it. That's their reading of what they think we say out of Genesis 1, 26. But you know, in Bible in, uh, interpretation, what is one of the rules? You look at the what? The context. And the context happens to be Genesis chapter 2. What is the first act of God in Genesis chapter 2 before he creates Eve from Adam? 
Remember? He does what in Eden? He plants a garden. Now, if he plants a garden, it means that's the only area there was a garden. There's no other man, right? So you just have a certain amount of acreage that's a garden. What is the rest of the surface of the earth then? A wilderness. What do you suppose God is saying to Adam by planting a garden before he brings Adam on the scene? That's what I mean by subduing the earth. We bring it into fruitfulness and we bring it into beauty. That was the original calling of man. The idea that you have to live in a pristine wilderness is false. That is a worship of nature. The idea prior to this environmental movement was conserve nature, conservation. That word's gone away. They don't believe in conservation anymore. They believe in preservation. And there are some other uh, implications here. The idea that man has been evolved on earth and he's a consumer and a polluter. This is what you learn in college now. This is what you learn in, in probably in high school. That man is just a virus, a polluter, and a nature. And I've got a bunch of quotes in the paper. We won't spend time on that. Now here's another one that clashes deeply and profoundly with the environmental movement. The earth has sufficient resources to sustain growing population until the return of Jesus Christ. Their argument is that that's not so. A guy by the name of Malthus comes along and saying population grows geometrically, resources grow arithmetically. There aren't enough resources available to sustain a growing population. And of course this comes out with the idea that we've got to reduce population. And that can be by voluntary or by force. And that's why part of the environmental movement is birth control that is enforced like China did it. And I got your quote in there where a lady professor says that China had it right. Problem with China. They did away with girl babies for years. What do you suppose happened to the population? All men. Now they don't have any girls. Duh. <laughs> so this is the foolishness but Malthusian ideas underlie this whole thing think of Ehrlich's the population bomb and so forth and um, the, the idea this is where you hear another vocabulary word in the environmental movement sustainability they're so worried about sustainability what they mean by sustainability is that we don't have the intellectual capacity to create new technologies. Dr. Beisner that I work with closely gives an illustration. How do you suppose we lighted our homes 200 years ago in America? Whale oil. Now if the population increased and more and more whale oil was needed, what would happen to the whales? They die off. Along comes Thomas Edison and we have something called the light bulb. The technology changed and the whales come back fine. If the argument of Maltus is right, then the price of basic resources should be increasing with time. And they're not. In the last two or three hundred years, the price of commodities has decreased, not increased. Price is a measure of the, of the availability of natural resources. So anyway, application to climate change is we've got to reduce the world's population because we've got to reduce the carbon footprint. Now it's so silly 
that we have a situation that involves this kind of thinking. But here's the fall. Very quickly, the fall has damaged man's intellect and conscience and let a sense of cosmic guilt. And I think this is one of the reasons why you have this fear. When, when Gore's movie was shown in England, a parent, thankfully, Christian parents didn't just fuss. They went out and they took legal action in the UK and they said, look, our kids are having nightmares after seeing Gore's propaganda piece. I want it stopped. So they got a judge in the UK to say that before any teacher in this nation shows Gore's film, here he must re- read a qualifying statement that this does not represent science, this represents a political agenda. But of course in the United States it was okay to scare kids. Then we have a second implication. And, and see, what this does psychologically, it sets people up to fear. And I, I go into that in the paper and I, I won't spend time on it. There. This is an important thing. If you look at how the nature goes in the Bible, God judges nature based on what, not whether we trash it. And it, it, we're not excusing trashing nature. But if you look at the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Did that come about because Adam and Eve failed to follow the environmental regulations? <laughs> or was it due to the fact that they sinned and God says, you defile my land? And in the Hebrew, that's defile the land. Defiling the land is not talking about environmental regulations. It's talking about religious idolatry that defiles the land. And then God judges the land. And you can see all the judgments against the environment. And there are some Christians now that say, they take, for example, Jeremiah 2, Isaiah 24, these defile the land passages. And then they say, well, see, they had environmental regulations. They're not talking about environmental regulations. They're talking about the spiritual condition of the population. Well, I want to get through this on time. So this idea that God, as, God, as goes man, so goes nature. Man's harm to nature is only because of consumerism. That's the environmental movement, and that's not true. Man's harm to nature is primarily because of his sin against the creator of nature. Let's go to the next event, the flood and the covenant. Very briefly, what does the Noahic covenant tell us? It tells us that there's geophysical stability, and God has promised constraints on the geophysics of this planet. And if he's, if he's done that, then he also has to run the whole universe that way. Okay. Here are two graphs. It's in the paper. This is uh, Michael Ord, who did some work on the Noahic Flood and the Ice Age. I, I mention this only briefly in the paper because one of the mechanisms to get people f- afraid is the oceans are rising. And we're going to flood all the coastal cities and so on. This shows you what happened, the magnitude. The oceans dropped 400 feet after the flood. Where? Because the water went away. Well, where did the water go away? It went into glaciers. You can't have glaciers and the ocean not change when you have that much mass transfer into ice. So as the ice is, melt, ice is melted, yeah, the ocean's rising about two inches a century or so. But even then... Coastal cities are trashed not by a few centimeters of sea level rise. They're trashed by storm surge. If you think about New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina, right? Hurricane Katrina was 10 to 12 times any little ocean rise. So, again, exaggeration. 
And then finally, uh, we come to the Mount Sinai, and I think I've shown you this before, but if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's sort of a chiasm here, and the way people uh, are to live in the kingdom of God and will live in the millennial kingdom is you have to have a heart allegiance to God, and the next thing that flows out of that from the uh, Third and the Ninth Commandments is the integrity of language. And without the integrity of language, you cannot have business. No business contract, no accounting is firm without integrity of language, which is integrity of character. So what have we seen in the climate debate? We've seen people hustle, like Stephen Schneider of Stanford University, who got everybody excited back 20 years ago. Here's what he said. Look at this. This is them speaking, not me. We have to offer some scary scenarios, make simplified, dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts we may have. We have Dr. Deming. We've got to get rid of the medieval warm period. And we have James Lovelock, one of the UK's outstanding scientists, who now is a skeptic himself. And he says, and you can read the whole quote in the paper, but he says this, and I want you to look at the last sentence. As an independent and loner, I do not mind saying, all right, I made a mistake. A university or government scientist might fear an admission of a mistake would lead to loss of funding. So that's the second thing that's going on that's leading the thing down. Finally, we can take climate gate very quickly. This was the email scandal. I personally believe that that scandal was set up by a scientist working within this Anglia who was fed up with this politicking. And what he did when he leaked the emails, he carefully selected emails that exposed these people. And not only did he do that, but he leaked part of the software program so everybody could see the scandal that was going on in the software package. And uh, so that's the climate gate. And here's one of the examples of the email traffic that was going on. Here's Michael Mann again, same guy. He was mad at two scientists at Harvard who in 2003 wrote a paper showing that man is not the ultimate cause of climate change. So, and it was published in a journal. Look what man says. Perhaps we, and he's talking to other climate scientists, perhaps we should encourage our colleagues in the climate research community to no longer submit to or cite papers in this journal. We would also need to consider what we tell or request of our more reasonable colleagues who currently sit on the editorial board. See? This is what's going on. So I want to conclude here with this. This has become formalized. The idea that science, as Eisenhower warned against, is an adjunct of federal funding. Post-normal science is the new buzzword. Here's what Eva Kunstler says. A new concept of science was introduced in the 1990s. The exercise of scholarly activities is defined by the dominance of goal orientation where scientific goals are controlled by political and societal actors. In post-normal science, post science, the maintenance and enhancement of quality rather than the establishment of factual knowledge is the key task of scientists. Scientists have to contribute to society by learning as quickly as possible about different perceptions instead of seeking deep, ultimate knowledge. So, again, 
our response to biblical abuse of the climate. And, you know, people say, well, okay, well, what do you Bible believers believe about environmental garbage and trashing? The Eighth Commandment. Do what they did in the 1800s. If they, you saw a, a, a violation of the environment, you sued. You went to court. It's a theft. I, I'm damaged by it. The Bible gives us plenty of ways of dealing with climate. And so we go back, as I started this presentation by Lauren Isley, science is an invented institution, an institution not present in all societies, and without that soil is as capable of decay and death as any human activity. So that's where we are, folks. And as Christians, that's why last night when I said, got up and I commended Steve for his paper, remember what I said? I said, I'm so glad, Steve, that you didn't stay silent. You spoke out. We've got to learn people to speak out. We are not the world's doormats. We are American citizens with rights, and we have a right to exercise those, as Paul did in Acts 16. You want to see how Paul dealt with citizenship rights? Read the tail end of Acts 16. He was put in jail illegitimately. And then the town municipal leaders thought, ooh, we got to get Paul out of jail. So we'll tell the jailer to sneak him out the back door in the morning. Paul said, no, you're not going to sneak me out in the back door in the morning. If you want me out of jail, you come down here and publicly let me out of jail. Right? That's the guy that wrote Romans 13. Go ahead. A lot of stuff that Ray said this morning and that Charlie said is all of these are are posted on the Dean Bible Ministries uh, website. Uh, there's a whole list. If you can go to the news page and then to conferences, you can go and all of the past Chafer uh, conferences are there. The papers are there. The videos are there. The audios there. Uh, the PowerPoints. Everything's back there going back to 2006. And it'd be, you know, if you're really interested in some of the other stuff that Steve did for us, you can go back to the 2010 conference, yeah. put that together. I think Charlie did a paper then that related to uh, global warming. So go back and look at at those things. Don't just just forget them. There, you can get a whole education. In fact, one of the things we're thinking about doing with Chafer Seminary is packaging some of these uh, ones, like the one we did in 2012 on sanctification, and making an independent study course where a student could listen to all of those presentations, read all the papers, and then have some additional reading, some additional requirements, and then that would be uh, serve as an independent two-hour course on, on sanctification. And we could do easily do one now with two sessions, um, two years that we've done on creation and uh, early Genesis issues. We could put that together as a course uh so this is just some of the things that we can do. You can just get a tremendous education just from going back through and listening to all of the all of the past uh, Chafer conferences that we have we have up online. All right. Does anybody have any questions, Wendell? Got to give you the one without the without the.
Thank you very, thank you very much, uh, Charlie. That's wonderful. I have two observations I'd like to have you comment on if you can. I think in Nazi Germany in the 30s, uh, the German government very much took over the scientists there with regarding racial purity. We see it's a similar trend maybe you see today with, with the different emphasis. You also opened uh, your talk with the uh, distinction between special revelation and general revelation and, and the relation between the two. Later you had a diagram with the Bible and arrows pointing outward. There seems to be a trend today to say all truth is God's truth, but the arrows tend to go in. They, they bring the uh, general revelation to bear on the Bible rather than the other way around. Yeah, you're right. Use the handheld over there. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, that was uh, that was one of Ray's uh, book reviews of that kind of thing that's going on, where we need general revelation to interpret special. Well, no, we need special revelation to interpret general. The arrows go the other way. Got another question? I'm not about to contradict anything you've said. I just, you know, some some of the arguments that the people that are the environmentalists make, uh, we, you know, if if you if you change their argument instead of global warming and talk about pollution, I mean, we we can't make an argument that that like the pollution coming off the refineries in Texas City and Pasadena, people, if you do the epidemiology, people are getting cancer from breathing that, and so I'm 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 certainly not saying CO2 is a is a, is a pollutant because obviously even if we were even if we were the most if, even if this whole room was full of new age people we'd say well gosh if the earth goddess Gaia has to be uh, promoted then then the plants need CO2 so how, how are we going to have C, how are we going to have the plants being promoted without CO2 but on the other hand I mean obviously there are pollutants in the air and they're not good um, even even if there's no global warming happening or no climate change and so I I, I think as Christians we need to kind of address things as being good stewards rather, you know, I mean. Well, I, I, I asked a lady a that's uh, deep into the environmental movement about how did we handle this 100 years ago? And she was very quick, Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment gives you the power to handle that kind of problems. If a, if a company is polluting stuff and causing damage, that's theft. And it has to be treated as theft. So the problem with CO2 is it's plant food. It's not a pollutant. And the f silly idea of my carbon footprints. Look, every organic molecule in my body has a carbon atom in it. Any other questions? Um, it seems like over the, I don't know, past 200 years, Western culture has placed a lot of trust in science and the integrity of science. And that's how we, we know things. With this kind of stuff going on, I mean, people will realize that science has no integrity. So, what are the implications of that? I mean, how are well, you going to? How are people going to decide anything well, about truth? Well, that's that's the title of my talk. What you've got here is sin that leads to a deception, which is paganism, and paganism undercuts science, and that's what we're going to see. How can you make policies if you're not sure of the of the science behind them? And that's precisely my point. We are seeing the erosion of one of the great engines of Western civilization. All right. Well, once again, thanks, Charlie.
We're going to break for a two-hour lunch. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out that uh, I added right before the last session is there's a Makaira up here. And last uh, uh, end of October, I guess the first of November, we had a um, uh, great celebration Bible conference at Preston City Bible Church up in Connecticut. And they were very gracious. And uh, the previous pastors and others who had previous pastors who'd been there, Dan Ingram did in, in pastoral internship there. I was there. Charlie was there. Um, Ron McMurray was there. And we all received uh, one of these as, as a gift. And one of the men in my church just finished building this uh, display for it. And so I put this up here so y'all could look at it. Do not, if I say don't touch, I know. I already said that to one guy, and he went right over there and just, you can shave with it. So be very, very careful. Kids, do not come close without your parents. Okay? All right. Let's, uh, what? Is there a drawing for that one later? No. No. Okay, let's, uh, let, let me uh, pray for the food. Father, thank you for this time we have together and again for the expertise of both Ray and Charlie this morning and the way in which they have presented evidence that, that supports and validates the biblical worldview and Christian worldview and again seeing the, the continuous and increasing conflict between the way um, moderns think versus the way uh, biblicists think. And Father, we need to take a stand for biblical thinking and be more... Um, be more educated, more sophisticated in how we present a, a biblical worldview. We thank you for our fellowship, uh, fellowship around food. Now as we go to eat, we pray that you would sanctify the food and you ask your blessing on it in Christ's name. Amen.